today, and then after next Sunday, we'll be continuing in it as well. Next Sunday is our anniversary celebration, so it'll be slightly different. Uh, there'll be a couple messages, Pastor Jeff and I will give uh, two shorter messages uh, appropriate for our anniversary celebration. I hope you can make it. We're going to have a special service, uh, and we'll have a, a barbecue afterwards right here uh, in our own backyard, and pray for good weather, uh, but we'll have a chance to be together and to celebrate, and um, I'm really looking forward to, to doing that, celebrating 15 years of God's goodness to us. It's uh, hard to imagine in some ways. But we are looking today at Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. So you can turn there in your Bibles, or you, uh, and we'll have it projected on the screen as well. If you don't have a Bible, the best thing is to have your own Bible right in your hand, um, whether it's book form, I think that's probably the better way, or uh, phone form, which I use quite a bit. Um, good to read along as we, as we are there. So just to kind of bring you back to speed on where we are, we're in the beginning. This is chapter 2, the end of chapter 2. This is a section where there are letters written to seven different churches, and these are seven actual churches throughout Asia Minor. Now, they're not all the churches in Asia Minor, but seven churches. And these seven churches really represent all churches in all places over all time. So these churches are typical of what you would see uh, perhaps anywhere in the world at any given time. And so you have a full range of, of situations. Uh, it's actually arranged in a certain way uh, where uh, the, there's the beginning, there's two churches that are in serious trouble, then, and then the, so the first and the last, and then the, se the second and the second and last are churches that are commended. And then there's three churches in the middle that are kind of real mixed. And as it goes through those three churches, it gets worse. So we're in that middle section there. But if you were to look at all these seven churches, you'll see all types of things. There are churches that are full of truth and love and are remaining true and fruitful in difficult circumstances and have nothing but praises from Jesus. There are churches that are full of truth and love, but they've compromised in some serious way and, and there are some serious dangers looming. And that's the middle section. Uh, there are some churches that are so far gone in, in neglecting truth or love that they're in danger of being shut down. So one of those we looked at already in Ephesus was rock solid on truth but absent of love and was in danger of being shut down. Another one we'll get to, Laodicea, uh, was prosperous financially but empty spiritually and also in danger. But the church we visit today is in the city of Thyatira. And it had lots of love and a good bit of truth, but it was seriously compromising by tolerating some very unchristian people in the church. Tolerating some very unchristian actions. And so Jesus addresses them here in this section to really rescue them. And guys, this, this is a section of Scripture that relates to us quite a bit. Because the people in this church are tolerating compromise with the world. They're tol tolerating a degree of compromise with the world. And they live in a world where there's a lot of pressure to compromise. It's a difficult place to be as a Christian for them. And, and really that relates to us. Though it, we don't have a situation as bad as they did, we live in a world where in some ways it's difficult to live as a Christian. And there are reasons, there are pressures on us to compromise. Sometimes we can feel that pressure in such an overwhelming way that, that we compromise that we're tempted to or actually do compromise and to live in this world with the world's propaganda can be very difficult at times it's relentless isn't it it's out there in the media and we're connected 
and we're to be connected with our world and with those around us. That's what we're called to as ambassadors. But sometimes living in this world, it can just be overwhelming and it can shape us and it can mess with us. It can mess with our perceptions and our actions. That's what was going on in Thyatira. That's what goes on with us and God wants to help us. We, we can sometimes, in the onslaught of the world's opinions, we can just kind of start to drift and not even know it. And we can actually start to sympathize with perspectives and practices of the world that are very foreign to the Scriptures and to what God would want. There's actually a a syndrome. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called the Stockholm Syndrome. And what goes on in the Stockholm Syndrome is people that are taken captive, they're kidnapped in some way, they over time can develop sympathy for their captors. And it can get to the point where they actually change their view and agree with their captors in some way. And it's named Stockholm Syndrome because it's, it really uh, was identified through something that happened, a, a, a bank heist in Stockholm, Sweden, where over, I think it was six days, they, they had hostages in this bank trying to get money from the bank. And over the six days, the hostages actually started to empathize with their captors, so much so that after they were rescued, they refused to testify in court against their captors. And not only that, they raised money for their criminal defense. Isn't that amazing? That's the Stockholm Syndrome, it's called. And it's been repeated throughout history. Well, sometimes, guys, we can experience, I think, the Stockholm Syndrome. We live in a world that, that at least tries to hold us captive through its perspectives. And certainly there's good perspectives out there. Don't hear me wrong on that. But there's a lot of things that are not good. And they're not God's will. And yet we can start to sympathize with the world and start to be persuaded, and start to change our perspectives so much so that we don't even realize that we are doing what the captives did in Stockholm. We won't resist. And matter of fact, we're even going to support the world in its ways. Guys, we need Revelation chapter 2, 18-29. Because we, just like the church in Thyatira, live in a world that wants us to compromise. And Jesus in this passage gives them powerful truth. A powerful reality to help them stand strong. And He wants to give us that same truth, that same power this morning. So let's pray and then we'll read God's Word. Lord, thank You. Thank You for not leaving us alone to be slowly persuaded by the world to do the things that are in opposition to Your truth and love. Thank You that You love us and You keep us and that You are the King over us as Your people. And thank You for this section of Scripture You've given us. Oh Lord, help us to hear from You. Help me to proclaim and teach it in such a way that we will receive all that You intend through it and we would be strengthened in these truths and walk in Your ways, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Follow along with me starting in verse 18 of chapter 2. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess 
and is teaching and seducing My servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and hearts. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God's Word from Revelation 2, 18-29. This section of Scripture teaches us something very powerful that we need living in our broken world. It's this, that the One who rules and rewards all The one who rules and rewards all gives strength to withstand worldly compromise. The one who rules and rewards all gives us strength to withstand worldly compromise. So with that in mind, let's just dig into the passage and learn about these truths and and see how we can apply them to our lives. Just notice as as you look at this section, notice that it really begins and it ends with Jesus. It begins with who He is. It begins with what He's like. And it begins with what He promises. So His rule is what we see in the beginning. And His reward is what we see at the end of this section. It begins and ends with Jesus. That's really important. Just a simple pattern in Scripture that's really important to get. Ultimately, it's all about Christ. It begins with Him. It ends with Him. And if we want to understand all of Scripture correctly, we we really need to see that. And certainly the book of Revelation, we need to see that it begins and ends with Jesus. He's our hope. He's our strength. He's our rewarder. Everything else falls in between and falls under that truth. So it begins and ends with Him. He's the ruler and He's the rewarder. So it starts out teaching us about His rule. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God. It describes Him as the Son of God. You've probably heard that. A description elsewhere, but it only occurs once in all of Revelation. That's right here. It's only used once in the whole book. And it looks like, knowing certainly what it, what it means theologically, but also knowing the situation in Thyatira historically, that Jesus is actually coming against, and He does that with the other churches, He comes against untruth. That's attacking the church. And Thyatira had as their patron god, uh, the god Apollos. And whose son in, in Greek mythology is Apollos? Zeus, right? So Apollos is the son of God. And so that's their patron god of, of the city. And it was prominent in the, in the city and their coinage and so forth that, that Apollos was their god. 
the Son of God. Also at this time in history, the Roman emperor had assumed the same title and had identified himself more or less as Apollos. And so in their culture, there are these untruths. There's this false deity saying, I'm the Son of God. There's the emperor saying, actually, I'm the Son of God. And Jesus says, church, they're both wrong. I am the Son of God. And I am the one who's in charge. And I am the one who rules over all. I am greater than the Roman emperor and certainly greater than the false god Apollos. He gives them that truth so that they would put their faith in Him as the Son of God, as the one who rules. And then He describes Himself. He uses imagery that He uses earlier in in Revelation. He says His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. This imagery of who He is, uh, of of a a God who sees all, of a mighty God. This is imagery that's used elsewhere in Scripture. It's used in the book of Daniel. um, And it's used... Like I said, elsewhere in Revelation. So he's mighty, he's powerful, he sees all, he sees through things. His eyes are a flame of fire. He, he's piercing in his gaze. His evaluation is perfect and thorough. He's a God of might. His, his uh, legs are like burnished bronze. Also, it, it looks like that he's saying this to relate to those in Thyatira as well because they lived in a situation where there were these different trade guilds, and if you wanted in Thyatira to have a good job and get good groceries, actually, you had to participate in some of these uh, social groups and norms in their society. And you had to be a part of a trade guild, perhaps, like a union, but more involved than just a union. And these trade guilds uh, would promote what they did, their work, uh, but also they would gather together for worship of their patron god, and they would have parties together. And in the culture that time, parties included uh, sexual immorality. And for them, it was considered kind of normal, good hospitality. But it isn't in line with the Word of God and the truth of God. And so these trade guilds uh, had a lot of power in these different cities. And for the Christians, they were aware of this. And one of the prominent trade guilds in Thyatira was the bronze workers. And they made bronze there, and they were known for that. And so perhaps in Jesus saying about this about Himself, that His feet are like burnished bronze, he's, he's alluding that He's the powerful, mighty One, and He's powerful, mighty over this bronze trade guild as well. So all these things He's saying are to encourage the church to have a perspective of themselves that's not dominated by worldly perspectives around them. So He declares who He is as, as the One who rules. He wants them not to fear or to compromise with the worldly systems around them. That's what he's getting at in declaring who he is. But he also speaks to them about being the rewarder as well. He not only rules over all things, but he's the rewarder of his faithful followers. So later on in this paragraph, he talks about this. He talks about the reward that he offers. He talks about, in verse 26, he says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end To Him I will give authority over the nations. So His promise to those who don't compromise, who who believe and remain in Christ, is to give them authority over the nations with Him. That's amazing. Maybe you've understood before that Jesus is in control of all things, that He has authority over heaven and earth. Maybe you've understood that, but not known that you as a believer have that authority with Him and you will rule and reign with Him. 
in authority. Jesus uh, says this. It's in line with what we see in Scripture. Psalm 2 talks about this. It's, really, it's, uh, it's quoted in this section. Psalm 2 says, Ask of Me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So Jesus is going to rule the nations. He's going to rule all. Now, He does have all authority in heaven and earth right now, but the completion of His rule is to come. And it will be over all the nations. It will be over the emperor, the Roman emperor. It will be over cities and trade guilds that currently have their legions under false gods and so forth. He will rule over all things. 1 Corinthians 6 teaches us about this. It says there, where Paul's talking about settling cases, lawsuits within the church, not going to the civil courts, at least not right away. He, he teaches on this based on this truth, based on this promise of Jesus. And he says in uh, chapter 6, verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? That's who we are. That's Jesus' promise for His people. To those who endure through difficulties, who don't compromise, they're going to rule. Jesus says also in that passage that He will give them the morning star. The morning star is really Jesus. And that's a quote from Numbers 24 where it speaks of the rule of the Messiah. And it speaks of Him as being one who rules and being the morning star. Uh, Numbers 24.17 speaks of that. I, uh, and so Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm going to give you Myself, but with Me, you're going to rule and reign. You're going to be part of the fulfillment of what it says way back in Numbers 24. Later on, Revelation 22 talks about it as well. So He's the rewarder of those who hold fast. Those who believe and remain. Jesus is going to rule over all the nations. And will rule with Him. Now why tell that to these people in Thyatira? What are they experiencing currently? They're feeling like the nations are ruling over them, don't they? Isn't that where they, where they live? They're under pressure from the culture. They're under pressure from the world to compromise. They feel... Like, no, it's the, these trade guilds and it's my neighbor who doesn't like how I live now that I believe Jesus. And it's maybe even the officials. They're ruling and we're being crushed by them. That's our reality. Jesus wants to adjust their perspective to realize, yes, that may be going on and yes, there's a plan and revelation and the whole of Scripture goes into that. That God rules and allows these things for a time to demonstrate his character and his faithfulness, and to make us shine even in suffering. But he is ruling, and he will finish his rule, and we will rule over the nation. So, right now, it may seem that they rule, but that's not the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is that Jesus rules, and you will rule with him over the nations. That's a powerful truth to help us not compromise with the world. Because sometimes our compromises, we just feel overwhelmed. These guys are in charge. I've got to learn to get along somehow for now. And Jesus says, no. If you remain true, you will rule over them. So hang in there. Trust Me. Walk with Me. Maybe an illustration would help us just to understand that. May, imagine someone named Sam. And he is a frail and small 
grammar school kid. He gets pushed around by all the kids in school. He's the runt of the class. They bully him. Uh, they harass him. They make fun of him. He doesn't have a moment's rest really at school. School is miserable for him in, in many ways. They take his lunch money. They ridicule him. And he doesn't like to go to school. That's what reality is for him at school. Sam. But imagine if Sam knew two key truths that would help him deal with his situation. Imagine if he were first aware that his dad is the principal of the school. That his dad is the guy in charge of the school, actually. And that his dad is well-respected by all the teachers and by the community. That his dad's the principal. Would understanding and remembering that his dad's the principal of that school help him deal with his situation? Help give him some perspective? Imagine also that his dad is six foot five, 250 pounds, with an IQ of 170. He's this well-respected, very able, former NFL guy, whatever you want to say, this, this guy, this big, huge guy. And when he was in grammar school, he was the runt of the class as well. And then he got bigger. And if Sam realized that, you know what, it's just a matter of time and I'm going to be big and strong and smart. If Sam knew, but maybe by the time he was in high school, that everything was going to be changed. And now he would be bigger and stronger and smarter than everybody and they would want to be his friends. And that wasn't going to be long until that happened. Would that truth help Sam deal with his reality? I think so. Well, that's how it is with us guys. We might be in situations where we feel bullied by the culture in different ways. We may struggle with wanting to compromise to get, somehow get along with the culture in certain ways that are counter to the Scripture. But knowing the truth that our God is in charge and in control and rules all things and that we will rule with Him one day gives us tremendous power to endure through the tough times and to not compromise, and to hold on. So how are you doing in this way? How are you doing in your life? Do you feel like Sam at times? Have you felt like that this week? Have you felt like that maybe at work? Or with friends? Or maybe extended family? You've felt bullied by those perspectives. It's been difficult to be a believer. To be able to even to speak freely. You don't like to be around people that don't know Christ because you feel like, I just can't be myself because they don't want to hear it. Do you feel like that? Have you felt like that? Do you feel marginalized at times? Maybe you feel like giving in. Maybe at your school. You just want to compromise a little bit just to kind of lower the temperature. Have you felt like that? Well, take heart. Jesus rules and rewards. So put your trust in Him. And He will help you. And He will lead you through. And it will be worth it. Stand strong. Hold fast in Him. We see His rule and reign expressed elsewhere in this passage as well. We see that He sees all things. He sees your faithfulness. He sees the good things. He sees the good things in this church in Thyatira. He sees what's going on there. He knows what, what they've been doing. So verse 19 says, I know your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. He knows their love. So these are all their good works. These are the things that they're doing. 
They've loved one another. They've loved with God's love. They've cared for each other. They've been there for each other. They've loved their neighbors. They've loved the people that, are, that even persecute them or are unkind or just disinterested. They've loved their neighbors. They've loved their extended family. The love of God, by the way, always has multiple dimensions. You can't say you love God if you don't love others. You can't say you love God if you don't love those who don't know God. When you have His love in your life, you, you love Him first and foremost. And the, the church here in Thyatira love God supremely. But that love, it never gets just contained. It doesn't work that way. It has to go outward to others, to, to the people of God, but also to all people. And this church loved people. So they're commended for that. Jesus sees their faithfulness, their good works. He sees their faith. They're believing God. They're trusting Him. They're, they're trusting Him in His promises. They're serving. He sees their service, their ministry. They're serving each other. They're probably serving their community. There's all sorts of service going on. Jesus sees that. And He sees their patient endurance. That they're hanging in there in tough times. They're not giving up. They're continuing. And that's to be commended. And, Jesus says, your latter works exceed the first. So not only are they exemplary in all these ways, but they're growing and getting better at it. And Jesus sees all that. And for the majority of the Christians in this church, these traits characterize their lives without any evidence of serious sin. And so Jesus says to them in verses 24 and 25 that He puts no other burden on them but to hold fast what they have until He comes. What do they have? What are they supposed to hold on to? Best answer always, Jesus. They have Jesus. They've come to know the good news, the amazing good news that, that God in His great love did not leave us on our own to be lost in this broken world, to be lost in our sin, to be lost under the, the evil of the devil and his minions. He didn't leave us alone, but He pursued us. He came and He lived among us. He lived in the, the same situations that we face. He experienced the same things that humanity faces because He was human, fully human, and yet fully God. He lived this life. He lived this life of love for God and love for others. His perfect life. Fulfilling all righteousness for our sake. Not for His own. For love of His Father. For love of His people. For love of any and all who would turn. For love that all would indeed turn and believe in Him. And He offered up this righteous life, this perfect life, this glorious life on the cross. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The penalty for our sin, the penalty for our choices to walk the other way away from our gracious God is death. Spiritual death. Physical death comes as a consequence as well. God's original design was not for us to die spiritually or physically. We all know that, right? When someone dies, there's just a deep sense of grief that's there. That This is just wrong. There's just something wrong here. It's amazing because even when we have hope and we know someone's going to be with the Lord, we still grieve, don't we? And it's a deep grief. And I believe it comes from the sense that this is just wrong. Death is wrong. It's not how it's supposed to be. Sin came into the world and brought death. This rebellion, this insanity that we find ourselves subject to, this, this thing, it just doesn't make sense when you think about it. God is always good and and kind and perfect. He's the Creator. He's given us all these things. He wants us to know Him. And yet we turn our backs. 
And we say, we don't want to live that way. We want to live our own way. And that brings death. It brings separation from God. That death is really ultimately separation from God. The wages of sin is death. And should we continue in our life walking away, we'll have an eternity of death. Spiritual death. That's what, that's what hell is. Not the medieval version. The biblical version. It's eternal separation from the goodness and greatness of God. There's nothing worse. And so the Bible uses pictures like fire and darkness to describe this. But it's beyond words to be separated from the only perfect source of goodness and greatness. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. God came Himself to offer up that righteous life for us on the cross to pay the death penalty for us. So that all of our sins and all that death penalty could be paid for and in Him we would have a perfect and eternal pardon from God. But it's more than a pardon because when you put your faith in Him, there's transformation, there's a new life and you are brought into the family, you are adopted as a son or a daughter, the Spirit of God dwells in you and you experience, the, you experience eternal life. And the foretaste of all that it will be. Yes, there's still struggles. We're still in this world. We still have broken bodies subject to the the consequences of our fall from God. But you have a foretaste of the Spirit of God in this new life. And the promise of God is though we may shed these bodies, we'll go to be with Him. And then one day, return with Christ with new bodies and a new earth. We have all this in Jesus and He is the faithful One. He has been raised from the dead. He's alive forevermore after dying for sin. He rose from the dead alive forevermore. He ascended. He's ruling. He's working in and through the church. He will return soon. And in in Him we have everything. We have Jesus. So Jesus says, hold fast to Him. Hold fast to Him until He comes. Hold on. Even as He holds on to us. This church was holding on to Jesus. And Jesus commends them for their works. And He says, I have no other burden than this. I want you to hold on to Me. Now we go elsewhere in Scripture to see that ultimately He holds on to us. But that doesn't mean you don't hold on to Him. Revelation is a word for a church that's tempted by the world. And one of the, sometimes the best thing you need to hear when you're tempted by the world is, don't do it. Hold fast. Hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to the One who shed His blood for you. Hold fast to the One who loves you with an everlasting love. Who died for you and rose again for your life. Hold fast to Him. Draw strength from Him. Overcome the world in Him. Overcome your sorrow and your suffering. Overcome your temptations. Overcome the temptation of of being rejected by friends and family, schoolmates, whatever. In Him. Hold fast. This church needed to hear that. And they needed to know that Jesus saw them in this. That they weren't on their own. This one with the eyes like flame of fire saw them and saw what they were doing and saw them holding fast and saw their good works. Sometimes, guys, we just need to be seen to know that we're seen by others. Just this past week, I heard a pastor friend of mine uh, talk about uh, being recognized. And this guy, I mean, this is, not, this is a humble guy. Not a guy who's looking around to be recognized, but he was just talking about being recognized by a friend, one of his uh, 
guys, he passes a member of his church in a public setting where the, the guy just said, you know, I'm so grateful for my pastor and mentioned him and talked about him. And he said it just was so encouraging. And I, and I was glad to hear that. I also ma- it made me think, I wonder how much he gets that. Because he seemed really blessed by it. Um, and, you know, I, I know more details, so it just seemed, you know, like he was really blessed. And I wondered, does that happen often for him? But just hearing that his love and his faithfulness as a pastor were seen by this guy encouraged him greatly. Now, I'm not sharing that story because I need you guys to do that for me. You guys do that a lot for me, by the way. Uh, and I'm very encouraged. I'm very blessed. And my uh, disposition is, is actually, I, I think about you guys. I have lots of things that I see in your lives. And I could spend a long time here, and I won't, but just talking about how each one of you that I know, I see faith and love, and life. I see a love for the Lord, a love for others, a love for His people, a love for His mission. I watch how you bless others. I watch how you honor God. I watch how you touch lives. I watch how you do that, not because I tell you to, but because the Lord has touched your life and you love Him and you love people. I see that all the time. And it makes this church really special just to be able to pastor you guys. So I see you, in part at least, And sometimes just knowing that someone sees us can be so helpful. But even more and most importantly, Jesus sees us. Jesus sees your life. Jesus sees your good works. Jesus sees your patient endurance. Jesus sees you doing the right thing when you could be tempted to do the wrong thing. Jesus sees you standing strong. Jesus sees you holding fast to Him. Jesus sees you in those moments where you feel on the edge and you cry out, Oh Lord, help me. I want to obey. I want to love you. I want to love others. I don't want to compromise. Jesus sees you in all those things. And He's pleased and He rewards His followers. So keep on holding fast. And by the way, you can help Jesus. Help people know that He sees them by seeing them yourself and telling them. Tell others how you see God at work in their lives. Tell others and and don't ever feel like you can overdo it there. Reminding people of how you see God at work in their lives. So Jesus sees all this. All these good things. Jesus sees their struggles as well. What happens to the time? This church was wonderful in so many ways, but there was a very serious flaw among them. Jesus sees all these things, but He holds something against them. That they've tolerated that woman Jezebel, He says. He speaks of this because He wants to rescue them. He wants this church to be strong and healthy. He wants this church to hold fast and endure and be fruitful. So He must tell them that He not only sees what's good there, but He also sees where they fail and fall and struggle. So He sees what's going on with this woman Jezebel. That they've tolerated this woman. And we'll get on to talk about what she's doing in a few moments, but they're tolerating her. This is a critique not aimed at Jezebel merely, or even primarily. The critique here is aimed at the church for tolerating Jezebel. So this church is commended in many ways, but they have this one thing. They've tolerated Jezebel. They've, they've compromised by allowing this woman to continue to do what she's doing. And Jesus wants them to know it's not okay to tolerate such things. It's not okay to tolerate serious compromise like this. It's not okay to wink an eye at this. It's not okay 
for the person. Compromising, certainly, but not okay for the church as well. The church must be a place where people hold fast to Jesus and are faithful in truth and love. We must deal decisively with serious compromise. Jesus loves their love, but He hates their tolerance, especially of Jezebel. Now, who's Jezebel? Well, this is a name used for someone in this church. Her, her real name probably isn't Jezebel. and It may not even be a woman. Uh, we're not sure, but it's a name used for this woman, probably prophetess in the church. It's taken from the Old Testament. There's a character in the Old Testament called Jezebel. She was the wife of an Israelite king, Ahab. She was a very serious problem for the people of God. Very serious problem for Ahab. She was devoted to the worship of false deities and who demanded things like human sacrifice and ritual sexual immorality. She was devoted to these false deities. She dominated and led her husband, King Ahab, astray. And ultimately, the whole nation as well. She pretty much destroyed the, the nation through her false teaching and her leadership. And so that name Jezebel and that character is given for this person probably is indeed a woman, an influential female prophet in the church. In all likelihood, she started out as a legitimate prophetess. Scripture talks about this role of being a prophetess. We as a church affirm the role. The point here isn't that she was a prophetess. That's not the problem. The problem is that she was a false prophetess. And she was teaching and seducing people into evil. Now, it doesn't get into the details here of what exactly she was doing, but we can gather from the rest of Revelation, the rest of Scripture, and from history that she was leading them in what we can call licentiousness. Licentiousness, Christian licentiousness, is, is when you take some of the truths of Christianity that are core truths, and you abuse them. And you use them as license, so like you have a permit to do other things that are inappropriate. And it looks like she was using the license, the, the truth of our forgiveness in the Lord and our, the fact that we live under grace to teach and lead people into evil things. Usually it goes like this. We're forgiven. We're forgiven in Christ. His blood makes perfect and complete atonement for all of our sins. So all of our sins, past, present, and future, are covered. There's no more penalty. We're totally forgiven. That is absolutely true throughout all of Scripture. We live under grace. The grace of God. The free gift of this forgiveness and all the inheritance and all the blessing that comes with it. The being counted as sons and daughters is entirely by grace. Received through faith. And yes, it has to be our faith. Received through faith. But it's all a gift. And grace is more powerful than all of our sins. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You can never outdo, outsin grace. Absolutely true. You can see that in Scripture. Can you see where that becomes license for other things? The teaching that she was probably leading them in is that, well, since that is true, then why worry? Why worry about your conduct? Why worry about sinning? Why worry about compromise? You're forgiven. You're under grace. So when the world offers these things, you can engage those things. You can be part of your trade guild. You can go to those parties. You can even have sex with people that aren't your spouse. You can do that. You can do all those things. You're forgiven. You're under grace. It doesn't matter. And you can think how appealing that would be, right? For a culture that they're very oppressed. The Christians are under a lot of persecution. And here's this 
woman teaching biblical truth about forgiveness and grace, but where she goes with it is totally wrong because that forgiveness and grace is coupled to a new life in Christ. I read Galatians 2.20 earlier, right? I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I live in Him. He loved me and gave Himself for me. I live by faith in Him. So now I live this new life in forgiveness and grace that's to love God and love others and be holy. To be like Jesus. That's the whole point of it. Not to be a license to abuse my life and others, but power and truth to propel me into holiness. But that's what she's teaching, it looks like. And it's not good. And they're probably thinking, Jezebel and her followers, like, this is a good deal. We got the best of both worlds. I like this grace thing. And they don't know that they're in for a lot of trouble because King Jesus sees everything. And He sees what's going on there. And He will not allow it to continue. And so He says in verse 22, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know what? that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. In other words, I know what's going on in your life, and I'm going to respond. And if you are holding fast and producing good fruit, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to be there with you. But if you are wandering into compromise, I'm going to deal with it. He's going to bring either discipline or punishment to these people. It's pretty serious stuff. He's given time, actually, and I'll talk about that in a little bit, for Jezebel to repent. So he's given time. It's been addressed. He wants her and everyone following her to change. But she hasn't. She's refused. And so, she, so he's going to bring judgment. She's going to be, looks like, get some sort of disease or something. And there's going to be this great affliction on those who follow her. And it says, I will strike her children dead. Wow! You don't want King Jesus saying that about you. This is meant to bring repentance and to hear the warning from Jesus. Guys, you don't mess with King Jesus. He is gracious and merciful and patient and kind and glorious. He's there for us. But He's not a pushover. And He will not tolerate serious compromise. At least over the long haul. He will deal with His church. He does not play games. As C.S. Lewis said, He's not a tame lion. And this church had compromised by tolerating this compromise. And so Jesus is going to bring judgment. He's going to bring discipline or punishment. I use those two words because they're slightly different. Discipline is corrective response to error. So you, it's a corrective response. The desire and discipline is to help someone come back to what's right. Punishment is a corrective, or is not a corrective, it's a payback for a response. Discipline is for. God's people because He loves them and He wants them to come to Him and come back and walk with Him. Punishment is for people that have rejected the Lord who do not come to them and God brings appropriate payback. That's punishment. He's bringing this to this crowd and, and we don't know. It looks like probably Jezebel herself may not be a believer at this point. So there are those in Tyre who are going to perhaps receive punishment, not just discipline. You don't want to get to the point where you're, you have to figure that out. You want to respond. You want to respond to Him and His love for His church. 
And this church has made the error of not dealing with this. They should have acted. They're in some way at fault for tolerating this sin and serious error. Perhaps, I think the implication is, if they had acted and not tolerated, this judgment would not have happened to Jezebel and her followers. Perhaps if they had practiced church discipline to deal with Jezebel and put her out of the church if she didn't repent, then her influence would have been cut off and these other people would not have to undergo discipline. They've failed in tolerating this woman and her false ministry. That's an implication here and it's important for us to get that, guys. This isn't just about personal compromise. Avoiding personal compromise. This is about avoiding church compromise. Now you might be thinking, well, we don't really have that stuff going on. You know, we don't have people who are saying, let's join the trade guild and you know, go worship a false god and have sex and all that. We don't, that's really not prominent in our culture. You're right, at least currently. And that's a good thing. But there are some sins and serious errors around us with which we can compromise. Some more serious than others. Let me quickly just give you two. One is, this is a milder one, but it's a serious one, and I think there are consequences if we compromise. That is, seeing the church as business. Or seeing the church as entertainment. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't business and entertainment aspects to church, but it's a worldly idea of church, and it's out there. And it's being taught by some teachers. Maybe they could be called Jezebel teachers. It's the idea that the church is just another organization like a health club, a sports team, Starbucks or the Lions Club, and we participate in one because we like what they have to offer. We might play our part, maybe a lot, maybe a little, but we leave if we find something better. We use metrics, we use ways of evaluation on the church that we would use for those other organizations. And I'm not saying these questions are wrong, but when they are the questions about church, then something is wrong and we are compromising. Also, let me just give a caveat. I understand most people come to church, at least initially, because of these reasons. That's okay. But we shouldn't stay there. We need to grow. So we evaluate church with questions like, are the people nice? Do I want to be associated with these people? Is it good for my family? Is it well run? Are they thriving? Is it fun? Do I enjoy Sunday, the Sunday service? Again, those questions might have their place, but when they are the prominent questions, we've compromised. The biblical questions we should ask are things like, do they believe the truth? And seriously seek to follow the truth. Do they love God? And are they more excited about Him than anything else? Do they love each other? Do they love their community, those that don't know Christ? Is the Bible important? Do I have any biblical reason not to be in this church? Do I have any biblical reason not to be in any church? I think the answer to that is, the second one is no. first one, you have to think through it. Am I treating this church more like a family than a club? Or an enterprise? How is God calling me to lay down my life and my gifts to serve others in the church? In other words, I... Do I need to orient myself as a server versus a consumer in this church? Have I thought it's just okay to come and go? When really Scripture, I think, would teach us apart from serious sin, heresy, or clear, compelling leading of God, there are things that God does. 
really we should stay because it's a family and I wouldn't leave my family. And though a church isn't quite the same as a family, we should think this way. So this idea is the church of the consumer. And that's one of the compromises that is out there. And I say that because I think that's the more immediate one perhaps for some of us in some ways, in some form. For the most part, I think we do really well as a church in this idea. That's one. Another one is uh, the compromise of our time over sexual ethics. This is a, a growing uh, concern. And it's uh, this idea that's there in our culture where we've dramatically moved to this view that holds sexual liberty as pretty much most fundamental to American ideals. Functionally, at least. One must have the right to believe and practice what they wish in regards to sexuality and gender identity without any inhibition or lack of support from others. One's personal ethics must bow to this sexual liberty, and certainly one's religious ethics must either be hidden or openly endorse this American ideal. That's kind of what's going on out there. That's the idea. Do Do you see that, guys? Have you encountered that? This mindset also tends to demonize those who think differently. It considers disagreement to be bigotry, gross ignorance, or pure hate. There's not room left for, for rational disagreement. Respectful disagreement. Those who disagree are often shamed as intolerant, abusive, and insensitive. That's what's going on in our culture. We shouldn't be too surprised that that's in the world, but we should be concerned that this has infected the church. Now I speak broadly as the whole church. I don't have a particular instance of us compromising seriously, but I think the temptation's there. Churches, I believe, are afraid to define themselves in contrast to this militant brand of sexual rights. And so they hesitate to clearly state that these behaviors are unethical and unacceptable in God's church. While we are called to love and accept all who come, all who come, to love and accept them in Christ, that doesn't mean we accept the behavior. That doesn't mean we start calling the behavior okay. We are to be patient and coming alongside all those who struggle to follow Jesus. And Jesus' sexual ethics are good and glorious, but they are narrow. And everybody struggles with those ethics. So we are to be patient and humble and respectful, but we don't compromise the ethics. We don't compromise this practice of fidelity, one man, one woman, in marriage for life. And outside of that, there's not to be sexual practices. And I'm concerned for the church at large that we wouldn't tolerate this Jezebel deception that says, hey guys, just soften it a little bit. And there's more than that going on, guys. There are churches that would preach, preach the same gospel that we do and look like us in so many ways that have said it's okay. It's okay to compromise. Matter of fact, we, we acknowledge all marriages. We acknowledge all sexual practices within certain appropriate borders, I guess. But that's going on now. And I think it's just like what was going on with Thyatira. It's a little different. But it's compromise we're making with the world because of the pressure that's on us. And we need Revelation 2, 18-29 to help us to hold fast. Now don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean to help you be obnoxious or self-righteous. You're to be humble and patient and loving. You're to share how you struggle. 
But you're also to share that this is a good thing the Lord's called us to. It's for our good and His glory. And so together, by His grace, we journey seeking to be faithful, holding fast. But we don't compromise the standard. That's a real one. And I'm concerned for us, I'm concerned for the church at large, and it's not just related to the uh, LGBTQ community, but all sexual issues, pornography, misogyny, misandry, premarital sex, any sort of marital unfaithfulness through acts of commission or omission. Our culture is broken in this area, all around. And it's pushing us all the time away from the ways of God. And God calls us to new life in Him in a new way to follow His ways. Jesus is good, holy, powerful. We are to let Him reign over our lives in this area and to not compromise together. So let's run to Him. Let's hold fast to Him. If the band could come up as we prepare to transition. Just quickly. Sorry that I've gone over time. But just quickly. Let's just back up a little bit and look at the whole passage. And recognize who Jesus is. Jesus rules and He rewards. He's over this church. He sees the good. He commends them. He addresses their struggles. And in that whole address there is certainly a degree of severity that we need to take Jesus seriously and not compromise. But He says He's given time to Jezebel to repent. And others will receive these this discipline or punishment, unless they repent. Guys, there's always time to repent. And before we go to communion, maybe you need to repent. And maybe your behavior and your compromise is not that serious. That's good. But maybe it's even just that leaning that way. You need to say, Jesus, forgive me for that. I don't want to do that. I need you. Help me. 